Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, you truly are a God who blesses us beyond all understanding. Father, we have come here to worship you, to pour out our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on your behalf as an offering to you. And in that process, Lord, you fill us to overflowing. And so we thank you that in your infinite wisdom and in your infinite grace, you bestow your blessing upon us, even when we don't deserve it. We thank you and we ask now that all of the things that are clamoring for our attention at this moment, all the things that are causing us worry and anxiety, all the things that are causing us pain and distress, may you just pause all that for a moment so we can enter into your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, we have been talking for weeks now about what it looks like and what it means that we are all leaving a legacy of faith. All of us, whether we know it or not, are leaving a legacy of faith to our children, to the younger generation, if we don't have children, to those around us. And you all know better than I do that children and those who are younger than us, not just kids, but like high schoolers, young adults, they will look at what you do and how you do things, not so much what you say about things. Does that make sense? So for those of you who are parents, and I'm sure we'll experience this at some point in my life, the things that frustrate you the most about your children, where do you think they learned it? Yeah, from the parents. And that's okay. Because kids pick up on the patterns they see from the adults that are around them. And so as a church, we've entered into this journey where we say, well, we want to leave a legacy of faith for those who come after us, that's a good legacy of faith. That's a positive legacy of faith. We want to show the younger generation that faith in God is, shouldn't be optional, but it should be the central part of our life because we've experienced faith in the first person, and we want to make sure that we pass that on to the generations that come after us. That is what our calling is as adults in this church and that's why we have spent, at the end of this, will be six different sermons talking about what it means to leave a legacy of faith. And so this morning, I want us to look at 1 Samuel. And uh, there is no PowerPoint, so if you'll uh, just pull out your Bibles. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. The Pew Bible is NIV, um, so it's going to differ a little. But any Bible version is good. So I want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. It's a story, if you've been in church for any length of time, it's probably a story you've heard. It's a story we've read many times, and so we're just going to spend a few moments on this. But I think it's a story that matters a whole lot when it comes to how we interact with God and what that legacy of faith looks like. So 1 Samuel chapter 3, begins, verse 1 begins with this. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Eli was the priest. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were not widespread. So in the beginning of this chapter, it tells us something very important. It says that Samuel was ministering to the Lord under the priest Eli, but at that same time, the word of the Lord was rare. Which is a biblical way of saying that God was not communicating to his prophets like he had been in the past. And the question that we instantly ask is, well, God, why did you depart from us? Or God, why have you not spoken to your prophets? But what we find in Scripture is not that God stopped speaking, it's that people stopped listening. 
And what we understand to be happening here is the people who were the leaders in the church at the time had stopped listening to God. And because of that, the Bible tells us as the writer is looking back and reading and writing about what had happened at this time, was saying that God was not as present, but the reality is, is because people had stopped listening. And, and for us to truly, truly understand what was going on here, let's, let's just flip the page to chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And here's what it tells us. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 12. Remember, Eli was the main priest, and it says, Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels. What does your Bible say? Wicked. Who else? Yeah. I lo- like, if, like, like, it's just so funny, like, it says their sons were scoundrels, right? Like, that's what we say about, well, we don't say about people, but like, 30 years ago, that's the words we used. So that's why I love the Bible. I love because it uses these descriptive words. But it says, The sons of Eli were scoundrels, and they had no regard for the Lord or for the duties of the priest to the people. Now remember the sons of Eli. Their names were Phineas and Hophni. And they were also priests. They worked under Eli, and they were ministering to the people. And if we remember in the Old Testament, the, the, the purpose of the priest was to pray on behalf of the people to God. So it was the interme- inter- he was the intermediary between the people and God. They would intercede for the people. They would pray for the people. They would open up the Torah to the people. They would discuss the things of God to the people. They were the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And what's so scary about this, and I know I laugh because it says, my Bible says that they were scoundrels, But what's scary about this is it says that they had no regard for the Lord. They didn't respect God. They didn't have what the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord, which was they didn't have the awe and the reverence before God or for the duties of the priest to the people. And so this is really telling about this story because the people who were supposed to be the leaders and the shepherds of Israel had no regard for what God was needing them and asking them to do on behalf of the people. And so the second part of verse 13 continues. When anyone, and, and so the Bible, before we start inferring what they were doing or not doing, the Bible's clear about why they were considered scoundrels. It says, when anyone offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come. While the meat was boiling... So in the Old Testament, what was happening here is that there would be in front of the temple or wherever it is that they would do the worship, there would be these big cauldrons or big pots of water that was boiling. And so someone would come up, so one of the Israelites would come up, and then they would bring like the choice meat of something they had sacrificed that God had blessed them with because the understanding was, and, and it continues to be for us, that everything we have is a result of God's grace and blessing towards us. Right? That's why we give tithe and offering, because it's a reminder that God is blessing us with so much, and we are returning what God has given to us as a sign of trust and faith in Christ. So these people would come, and they would give their offering, and they would put it in this boiling water, and, and so that's, that was their offering to God. And it's going to explain what happens here in a second. So it says, when anyone offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, 
And the servant would then thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, right? So it could have been anything. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Silo to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, now don't let me lose you here because this is going to make so much sense in a moment. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the one sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Now if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take whatever you wish, he would say, No, you must give it wait what? No, you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. Now None of you in the last eight years that have been here have ever brought as an offering meat, I don't think. So this is a little different for us. But the reason that this was happening was that if they didn't have money in, this, in, in their society, there wasn't, a, like, there wasn't a lot of money, but there was a barter society and it was an agricultural society. So their understanding was everything that they had was given to them by God, which means that their livestock was given to them by God. So a part of their offering and their sacrifice is that they would bring this to God. Now what the Bible tells us in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is that the priests were allowed to have some of what was coming in as a sacrifice. All right, so that part wasn't wrong, but what they, would, what they were allowed to have, and I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget this, is that they were allowed to receive either the breast and the right thigh of a sacrificial animal or the shoulder two cheeks, and the stomach of any sacrificial ox or sheep. All right, so there was, it was very clearly defined what the priests were allowed to get from the sacrificial offering. But what these priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were doing is that they were just bypassing Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and they were coming to, like, these, or they were sending their servants. They weren't even there. And they were sending their servants with as big as fork as they could find, and then they would go in and get it. Now, what's interesting, for those of you who are vegetarian, you may not be aware of this, right? Because so, this, is, this is, doesn't happen with veggie meat, what I'm about to explain. But what would happen is they would bring this choice meat, and then there was fat that was attached to it, right? We've all seen something like that maybe in the movies, right? And uh, there was fat that was attached to it. Now, what happens is um, all the flavors in the fat, <laughs> and the priests knew that. So they wanted the bit, they would put their fork in there because if you know when you cook meat, the more it cooks, it shrinks a little bit, right? So these guys were setting their servants in to take the biggest piece before they were cooked so that they could get as big a piece as possible. These priests who were chosen to be shepherds and priests for these people were bypassing the laws of God because they wanted it to benefit themselves. These were the people that the Israelites were supposed to trust and love and care for, but they had no regard for God. And they were cheating people out of their offering. Now, here what's even more interesting about the fat, the reason I'm bringing the fat up, the Bible tells us in Leviticus that the reason the fat was so important was because the, in, in Leviticus it tells us that the fat is burned off as a pleasing aroma to God. And so the, the more fat that's on this piece of meat, it's almost like this, the desire is almost greater as a sacrifice, saying, God, we are giving you the choice, the most choice meat that we have, and it is being lifted up as, a, as an offering and a pleasing aroma 
to God. And what's so crazy about this is that these priests were like, like, they, like the Bible says they blasphemed against God because it was like what was coming for God they took for themselves. You know, when we look at this story, we ask ourselves, what kind of legacy of faith were these guys leaving for the children of Israel? They had no regard for God. Verse 17 says, Thus the sin of the young men was so great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. They were also doing other really bad stuff with the women in front of the temple. Like, but I'm not going to read that because it's got to be rated G here this morning. But it was some terrible stuff that was going on. They had no regard. Now, in the middle of this story, before we lose heart, verse 26 says this. Now there was this counterpoint. It says, now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and the people. Remember, Samuel was a miracle baby. His mom would come to the temple every day and pray that God would bless her womb and that God would give her a child. And Eli, the priest, thought she was crazy or she was drunk or whatever, but she kept coming back and she kept praying and God gives her a son. And what does she do with Samuel? Does she say, this is just for me, and thanks, God, but I'm going to move on with my life? No, what does she do? She dedicates him to the temple so that he could serve the Lord. What God gives her, she gives back to him. And then we see these priests that God said, I will always, and, and, and it was a promise in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that God would always give the priests enough. He would always give them everything that they needed to live. But these people were saying, God, what you're giving me is not enough. I am taking more. And so you have these two stories juxtaposed to each other. Is the right word? <laughs> and they have, on the one hand, a woman who has nothing, and then the very seed of the inheritance that God gives her, she gives back to God. And then you have these two other guys, Hophni and, and um, Phineas, who are there, who God has, in a sense, chosen because of their lineage, and they want nothing to do with the things of God. But Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord. So now we go back to chapter 3 of Samuel, and now it begins to make sense when the scriptures tell us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and his visions were not widespread. Because the people that were supposed to be listening to God the most had stopped listening. Verse 2, at that time... Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So I'm going to stop there for a second. At first glance, sorry, I'm like excited about this passage, so I'll keep an eye on the time. So here's what's so amazing about this, right? We think that this is just describing a situation. So Eli is asleep, and Samuel is asleep as well. But here's what's important about this. This was a biblical way of using metaphor and symbolism to get us to something deeper. It says that Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying in his room. This was a metaphor for saying, like, he still understood the things of God. 
right? He asked his sons, and if you looked at several verses before, he asks his sons, why are you doing these terrible things? So he still had some awe and some reverence and some respect for God. He still, and so that's why the Bible says his eyesight, his understanding had begun to grow dim, but it was still there. And he was lying in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. God's presence and providence was still there. And Eli understood, and God had not given up on the Israelites. So here's what's happening, right? There's something big's about to happen. And then the interesting part about this, remember this, that this is a story of juxtapositions of opposites. And it says, and Samuel was lying down. Where does it say that Samuel was lying down? In the temple of the Lord, where what was there? The ark. The ark was, in that time, was a physical manifestation that God was present with Israel. If the ark was in the camp, there was no fear because God was there, right? It was what we understand as the Shekinah glory. The glory of God was present there. And what this tells us is that the sons of Eli were scoundrels, wicked, evil. But Samuel, who didn't come from the priestly family, Samuel, who didn't come from the right family, Samuel was laying in the presence of God And God's favor, the Shekinah glory of the ark, was over Samuel. And what's so, like, powerful about this is that this isn't, like, this wasn't a fate that was predetermined. It was his openness to God. Yes, his mom did so much to bring him before God. The mom dedicates him to the temple And so we have this choice in our lives, you have this choice, and I have this choice, whether we will be scoundrels like Phineas and Hophni, where we will only care about what we want, or we can be like Samuel's mom, Hannah, who even what little she has, she gives back to God and passes on her legacy of faith onto her child. You see, this isn't just a story This is an invitation for us to live our lives like Samuel. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to be perfect and good all the time. Like, it's impossible. We, We strive for goodness because of who God is. But it's understood that it's only the Holy Spirit who can help us to be the very best that we can be. Because God knows we've all tried to be really good. And you know what ends up happening when we focus on trying to be good all day? We end up realizing how not good we were that day. We end up noticing all the things we've done where we're just like, man, God would not have been happy with me doing that. But when the Spirit fills us, we go about our days giving honor and glory in everything that we do. And what we find with Samuel is that his dedication to God shone that even in the midst of the people who were supposed to be the religious leaders, who were supposed to be the ones who exemplified the character of God, it was a child whom God chose because the adults weren't living up to what God had called them to. And so when we are going through this series on growing together, God has clearly invited each one of us as adults to live a life that lives up to the obedience and the care and the love of God. Like God has invited us to step into this faith and pass this legacy of faith on. But if you fail... God will find someone else who will be faithful. And what we find in this story is that for God, a child was faithful enough. And God works through a child to, in a sense, affect 
the rest of earth's history. Because remember, Samuel is the one that gets sent to find King David. And it was King David who God said would bless his lineage for time to come. And it was through the lineage of David that then Jesus comes. And well, with Jesus, the game's over, right? It is in Jesus that everything is changed. All because one child listened to the voice of God. And as a parent and as an adult, we have the sacred task and calling to show our younger generations what it looks like to live a life that is modeled on faith in Christ. Because remember, we started this message by saying that the kids will see how you live, not the words that you say. You see, as pa- well, I'm not a parent yet, right? But as like adults... <laughs> We have this sense of like, well, if I tell a kid to do something, well, then that kid better do it. And what happens when the kid doesn't listen? We reiterate it louder a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And so we think, well, I've told them a hundred times. I've yelled at them. I've grounded them. I've done all this. And they're just terrible kids. But the reality is, is because they've looked at your life. They have seen the life that you have modeled, and when it comes to faith, it's especially important because kids will follow the legacy of faith and the model of faith that they have seen in the adults that are around them. So you think we come to church just so that we can be filled with the scriptures, but we come to church because we have the sacred calling to be able to pass our, our, our faith onto the generations that come after us which means how we use our words, how we speak to each other, how we talk to each other, how we interact with each other is more important, and I hate to say this, than what I'm saying up here, because let's be real, like none of you remember my sermons a week later, hardly ever, and you're adults of faith. (laughs) I've made peace with that. That's why we videotaped the sermon so you can go back if you want to. But for the younger generation, what's more important is how we demonstrate our faith. Words matter when we help them to explain and understand the things and the deeper things of faith that obviously require words. That's why we do Bible study. That's why we have Sabbath school. That's why we have sermons. That's why we have all of this. Like words are essential to understanding God, but kids are going to look at the life that you model. So that's where I could end the sermon, but I'm going to keep going because it's 1145. Are we okay with that? So we're going to look at the juxtaposition between Phineas and Hophni. I keep wanting to say Phineas and Ferb. That's a cartoon. (laughs) If I say, whatever, Phineas and Hophni. And here's what it tells us. Um, Chapter 3, or we can be like Samuel. Chapter 3, verse 4. Samuel was in the presence of the ark, and here's what it tells us. Then the Lord called Samuel. Then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel, Samuel. Wait, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you, are, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and this is like this kind of, it's not that he didn't know God, obviously he knew who God was, but it was, it's this language of saying like he wasn't in that intimate, connected relationship with God. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Again, it's metaphoric language. 
Then the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And in, this Bible, and in the Bible, whenever you see something happens three times, it's, it's, it's a code way of, un, of telling us, pay really close attention to what's about to happen. So he got up and he went to Eli and he said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, remember, the light of, the, the light of God, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Remember earlier it says that Eli's eyesight was going, but it was still there. So Eli had enough understanding that God was calling Samuel. You see how all of this starts to fit together. And so so Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel says, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I had spoken concerning his house, which basically God had said, Eli, you dropped the ball. Your sons dropped the ball. You didn't do enough. And, and, the, and the prophecy was that his line, his ancestors would end with them. I'm not saying that that's going to happen to you in a physical way that you will die. But if you don't live a legacy of faith that honors and glorifies God, your influence will die on the younger generations. If you don't live up to the calling that God has placed on your lives, your influence will end. And the time that you had to share your faith with the generations that come after us may come to an end. But we also believe in a God who is a God of grace. And I think when we do come to this moment of understanding that maybe we haven't lived up to this calling that God has placed on us, If you come to that understanding, it's because God is giving you that understanding. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart, and God is inviting you to try again. You see, this message this morning is about the juxtaposition between people who are open to what God is asking them to do and those who are not. You have so much influence, so much care so much ability or such a great ability to pass on your faith by how you model your life now i know if you don't have kids they're not going to see your morning routines where you open up scriptures and read scripture they're not going to see how you pray five six seven eight nine ten times a day they're not going to see how you interact outside the church but they will see how we interact inside the church and it's something that we've been sharing with for the last couple of months. It's, it's how we enter into conversations with one another. It's how we treat one another. And it's not about like how that person treated me or what that person said, but it's what am I responsible for? And how do I shift my behavior so that, so that if someone is watching, they will say, wow, that could have gone two different ways. <laughs> and it ended up better than I thought. Because we get to show our faith by how we live. And whether you know it or not, people are watching 
not because they're looking out for you, but because you are around other people. And people are watching, and people will make judgments about God based on how we live. And so you are invited to the sacred task and the sacred call to live your life in such a way that when others see, they will know that you are lifting Christ up and that you are reverent and in awe before God.